Welcome to the Crossview Church Message of the Week. We hope you enjoy the message this morning. For more information, visit us at mycrossview.com. Well, this week we're continuing in our series on the book of Daniel. Last week, Pastor Kyle taught from Daniel chapter 5, the story of King Belshazzar and the writing on the wall. And he encouraged us to see ourselves in this story and to use King Belshazzar as a mirror to show us the true condition of our heart and to see where we're really putting our trust and hope. You'll recall that the the message to Belshazzar was a dire one, a message of judgment, and the chapter ended like this. That very same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. And this is where we're going to pick up this week with the new king, Darius. Darius was uh, at least the third king whom Daniel had served in Babylon. And by this time, Daniel was, uh, was quite an old man, and he had faithfully served the line of kings as an advisor and as an administrator for many decades. Let's hear the story of Daniel and King Darius in Daniel chapter 6. Darius decided to appoint 120 chief administrators throughout the kingdom and to set over them three main officers to whom they would report so that the king wouldn't have to be bothered with too much. One of these main officers was Daniel. Because of his extraordinary spirit, Daniel soon surpassed the other officers and the chief administrators, so much so that the king had plans to set him over the entire kingdom. As a result, the other officers and the chief administrators tried to find some problem with Daniel's work for the kingdom. But they couldn't find any problem or corruption at all because Daniel was trustworthy. He wasn't guilty of any negligence or corruption. So once again, Daniel's work and character were so excellent that the king decided to give him even greater responsibility And with that came greater authority and greater privileges. It was a big promotion, and Daniel's colleagues were envious. So they tried to sabotage Daniel. They tried to find something wrong with his work for the kingdom, but they came up empty-handed because Daniel lived with such integrity. When they couldn't find anything negative about Daniel, they decided to focus on the area of Daniel's life that they considered to be really his greatest vulnerability, his faith. Daniel had a reputation for his lifelong practice of steady faith. His colleagues knew that Daniel's faith was his highest priority and commitment. And so those who were trying to attack him saw it as a vulnerability. We see in uh, in verse five. So these men said, we won't find any fault in Daniel unless we can find something to use against him from his religious practice. And then the men went to King Darius and they appealed to his ego as a new king. They persuaded him to enact a law that said that for the next 30 days, everyone in the kingdom was to pray only to King Darius. Remember that kings were considered deities in the ancient world. And so all of his advisors, except Daniel, showed up to tell the king that they all believed that he should put this new law into place. Maybe the king didn't want to look foolish to his advisors, 
Maybe he thought that making the people pray only to him would be a good way to gain their loyalty and submission. Maybe he just really liked the idea of having his entire kingdom praying to him. Whatever his reasoning, Darius agreed to his advisor's plan. And he signed a law stating that for the next 30 days, anyone who prayed to any god or any human other than him would be thrown into a pit of lions. And when a king signed an edict into law, that law was binding even for the king himself, and there was no way around it. Of course, the king's advisors had manipulated him and had lied to him outright when they told the king that all of his officials agreed on the importance of this new law. The truth was that Daniel, the most trusted and soon-to-be highest-ranking official, was not among that group. But the others spoke as if on his behalf, and Darius either didn't know or didn't think about Daniel's practice of faith and what the law would mean regarding Daniel. And as we'll see, Darius quickly regretted his own rash decision. But listen to Daniel's response when he heard about this new law in verse 10. When Daniel learned that the document had been signed, he went to his house. Now his upper room had open windows that faced Jerusalem. Daniel knelt down, prayed, and praised his God three times that day, just like he always did. Daniel's steady faith meant that he was resolute in his commitment to the practices of that faith. Daniel did not pray to God simply because he was allowed to do so, but because prayer was a crucial and sustaining act of worship, of reliance, and of submission to God. Daniel did not just worship because he had a legally protected right to do so, and uh, so he also didn't despair when that legal protection was taken away. No, he worshiped for the same reason that we do, because God is worthy of our worship. A commentary in the Wesley Study Bible, which was published in 2012, described Daniel's dilemma like this. Daniel is forced to decide whether his ultimate loyalty will be to his God or his king, his calling or his career, his faith or his flag. Jesus defines it as the choice between God and Caesar, and that choice still confronts us with or without the lions. It's worth noting again that Daniel had faithfully served under several kings and earned the trust and the high opinion of each one of them. He did not hate his king, his career, or his flag, as the commentary put it. In fact, he served each with excellence and with humility. His loyalties did not always clash, but when they did, he was forced to choose, and his choice was clear. He chose God. So when Daniel heard about the new law, he went to his house and knelt before God in prayer and praise, just as the advisors knew he would. And predictably, those advisors caught him in the act of praying and moved to the next phase of their plan. Verse 12 says this. Then they went and talked to the king about the law. Your majesty, didn't you sign a law that for 30 days any person who prays to any god or human being besides you, your majesty, would be thrown into a pit of lions? The king replied, the decision is absolutely firm in accordance with the law of Media and Persia, which cannot be annulled. 
So they said to the king, one of the Judean exiles, Daniel, has ignored you, as well as the law you signed. He says his prayers three times a day. Once again, these enemies of Daniel used his primary identity against him. Notice how they describe him to the king, one of the Judean exiles. Not Daniel, the wisest man in the kingdom. Not Daniel, the most trusted advisor. Not Daniel, the interpreter of dreams. No, they called him Daniel, one of the exiles. Now the king knew who Daniel was, so this wasn't really an attempt to trick the king into thinking he was someone else, but it was an attempted act of dehumanization. It was reminding the king that Daniel was really just one of the captive exiles. The men were tapping into the anti-Semitism of the day. But again, what his enemies saw and used as vulnerability was actually Daniel's greatest strength, his identity of belonging to God. Now, King Darius was not swayed by the men's attempt to discredit Daniel. In fact, he was devastated when he realized what had happened. The story tells us that the king decided to rescue Daniel and he did everything he could to save him before the sun went down, before Daniel's sentence was to be carried out. But as his advisors eagerly reminded him, he was bound by his own law. And so we see in verse 16, the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and hurled him into the pit of lions. Now listen to what the king says to Daniel as he's being thrown to his death. The king said to Daniel, your God, the one you serve so consistently, will rescue you. Now given the king's sorrow over this situation, we can safely assume that this statement was not made as a challenge or in mockery. It's more likely that the king was speaking out of a desperate hope an ironic glimmer of hope that maybe Daniel's God was actually more powerful than Darius himself. He was witnessing Daniel's faithfulness to God and he was hoping that that faithfulness would pay off. Then after sealing the entrance to the lion's pit with a large stone, the king went home and spent the night in restless torment. At the first light, he hurried to the lion's pit. It seems that there was still some spark of hope in him, something that told him that perhaps all was not lost, that maybe Daniel's God really was powerful enough to save Daniel from even hungry lions, that maybe Daniel's prayers willingly offered in humility and faith were more powerful than the prayers demanded by the king. Look at verse 20. As he approached the lion's pit, he called out to Daniel, worried, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, the one you serve so consistently, able to rescue you from the lions? Do you hear the hope in his words? This is different than the mocking words of the Roman soldiers who crucified Jesus, who said, where is your God now? Won't your God come and save you? No, this is the king, one of the most powerful men in the known world, recognizing that even with all of his authority, all of his riches, all of his might, he had been powerless to save Daniel. Here he had commanded his entire kingdom to pray only to him as everyone, including himself, 
believed him to be godlike, and yet he found that their prayers were meaningless and that he himself was bound by human law. Daniel, was your God able to rescue you? Is your God able? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Is God able? Is he able to help, able to save, to heal, to provide? Do my prayers mean anything? Is God bound by the limitations of this world? Is he able? As we've spent this last month in the story of Daniel, we've seen over and over how God proved himself able to Daniel as well as to the kings and rulers of Babylon. And this quality of God is not limited to these unique situations that Daniel finds himself in. In fact, one of the names of God used in the Bible speaks directly to this truth that God is able. You may know that the Bible refers to God by many names, names used by the people of God throughout the biblical story, and many of those names describe a particular attribute of God. Now, God is so great that it is impossible to describe him completely, but some of his names give us an idea and a language to understand some of his characteristics. We see this in a familiar passage in the book of Isaiah, where God is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. One of the names of God that is used nearly 50 times in the Old Testament describes for us the truth that God is able. The name is El Shaddai, and it first appears in the book of Genesis when God told a man named Abram that he and his wife, Sarai, would have a child, and that through that child, Abram would become the father of many nations. And this was hard to believe because Abram was already 99 years old, Sarai was about 90, and they didn't have any children. And yet we see in Genesis chapter 17, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. And then the Lord went on to make a covenant with Abram that included the promise that Abram would be the father of many nations, that Abram's descendants would possess the land of Canaan, and that God's faithfulness to his people would be everlasting. El Shaddai. God Almighty, the omnipotent God, the God who holds all power, the God who is sufficient, the God who is able. What is it that God is able to do? The scripture is full of examples, both in stories and in statements. A few weeks ago, we heard in Daniel chapter 3, the story of the three men who were thrown into the fiery furnace because of their refusal to worship King Nebuchadnezzar. And the men said, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. Let's just look at a few other statements in scripture that tell us what God is able to do. Romans 16, 25 says that God is able to establish us by the gospel of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, it says he is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Ephesians says, he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. 
In 2 Timothy, we find he is able to guard what we entrust to him. Hebrews tells us that he is able to help those who are being tempted, and he is able to save those who come to God through Jesus. The book of Jude says that he is able to keep us from falling, and he's able to present us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Isaiah and Zephaniah both say that God is mighty to save. In Luke chapter 2, we see Gabriel, this angelic herald of Jesus, declare that nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. And in Jeremiah, God himself declares, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? God is able Nothing is impossible for him. Nothing is too hard. He's able to help, able to save, able to heal, and able to provide. Let's see how today's story ends. Darius called out to Daniel, worried. Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, the one you serve so consistently, able to rescue you from the lions? Then Daniel answered the king, Long live the king. My God sent his messenger who shut the lions' mouths. They haven't touched me because I was judged innocent before my God. I haven't done anything wrong to you either, your majesty. The king was thrilled. He commanded that Daniel be brought up out of the pit, and Daniel was lifted out, and not a scratch was found on him because he trusted in his God. No matter what you're facing today, friends, know this, God is able. He's able to do what may seem impossible. He is able to bring beauty from ashes, able to bring life to dry bones, able to bring light to the darkness. Remember that when God identified himself to Abram as El Shaddai, God Almighty, the God who is able, he followed that with an immediate directive. He said, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. And when Daniel told King Darius that God had saved him from the lions, he said, they haven't touched me because I was judged innocent before my God. How can we be considered blameless? and innocent before God through the work that Jesus did on our behalf, the sacrifice that he made by dying on the cross so that we could be declared righteous. Will we put our faith in him? Will we follow him? He is able and willing to save you. Will you trust him to do so? Let's pray. Lord God, we're so thankful that you are mighty to save, that when the powers and authorities of this world fail us, that we can still count on you and put our trust in you and our faith in you. Thank you for being almighty God, our El Shaddai. Thank you for, for not only your power and ability to save, but your willingness to do so, God. Thank you that you desire for us to be saved. We're grateful for your mercy. Lord, we pray that you would increase our faith so that we can continue to trust you, continue to, to, to put our, our loyalty first and foremost 
uh, in you, God, and our hope in you. Lord, help us to continue to practice the disciplines that will allow us to, uh, to put our faith in you, to trust you above all else, and when times are hard, to continue to serve you. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your mighty saving work that you did, that Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace, your mercy, your willingness, and ability to save. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to worship.